that last phrase on that video is uh, a bit questioning, isn't it? When we share love, we share God. That sounds almost like uh, there's a, a little bit of theological suspicion there in my mind. And uh, it's interesting that I think as we dig into the scripture this morning, we're going to discover that God completely redefines love. We have lit the third candle of Advent this week, and, and it represents love. And as we celebrate the anticipation of the coming of Jesus, we remember that the definition of love is a person. It's Jesus. The definition of love is Christ himself. John 3.16 is a verse that is familiar to all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe would have everlasting life. But verse 17 is one that we often leave out. And I think it needs to be added to our memory banks. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Indeed, that is what Christmas is all about. You know, love can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, in fact, dictionary.com has 21 definitions of the word love. And added to that are seven different phrases and idioms. And if you add even beyond that, how the inflection of your voice makes a difference, you love that. I just love that. It means so many different things to different people. And so the question is, how are we to make sense of the definition of love as it was written 2,000 plus years ago? Language is constantly changing. And, and it, I, we have to, have to recognize that fact. You know, uh, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, the one, the official one, added uh, 850 words to their dictionary this year, 2018. Can you imagine that? It's, it's interesting. The, those who are fascinated by language and words, well, there's a, there's a new word for you. You are a wordy. A wordy along the lines of a foodie, right? Or a groupie. Um, some, some words are, are uh, created by combi combining two different words. Uh, a new word in the dictionary uh, this year, uh, a new breed of dog called the Chewini. <laughs> what in the world is a Chewini? Well, you're right. It's, the, it's the, the, the marriage or the combination of a chihuahua and a weenie dog. And a weenie dog is the dachshund, right? Yeah. And we've also heard of the schnoodle. Do you know what a schnoodle is? Yeah, you know, a schnauzer and a poodle. And, of course, we have the Yorkie poo. And, and they are all in our in our dictionary now, there's even a new word for those of you who love to go camping, but not without indoor plumbing. <laughs> it's the combination of glamour and camping. It's called glamping now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder how many of you uh, remember when you were a teenager, uh, learning a brand new language, a language that your parents didn't understand. Uh, those words, uh, there's still that are uh, a few that are in use today. You remember uh, groovy, right? What in the world does groovy mean? And, and cool, yep, we still use cool a lot. I even heard the word neato the other day. 
Nito. Yeah. Well, today, uh, the same thing is happening among our youth. And however, in, back in the day, in, in the days of the 60s anyway, the way that language evolved was through speech. But today, language is evolving in a new way in text. How many of you text? Yeah, a good number of you. Well, I would say that if this room was filled with teenagers, every single hand would go up. It would be every hand. And that is where language is evolving today. It's interesting to me. I learned some new vocabulary this week. Did did you know that the word rip is being used? R-I-P? You guys know what it means, right? Rest in peace, right? Now, the... uh, It's being used in a different way, though, today. Uh, It has to do with, uh, it's a response to an unfortunate uh, set of circumstances. It goes like this. Oh, rip me. I just spilled coffee on my computer. That's what it means today. It's it's an unfortunate situation, and... uh, and that's, that's how they use it. Another word uh, is, is a combination of letters, S-M-H. S-M-H, what does that mean? It means I'm shaking my head. <laughs> shaking my head. And how do you do that? Oh, S-M-H, you're a Cardinals fan? <laughs> I'm shaking my head. But I know... Um, another one is throw shade. How do you throw shade? Well, throwing shade has to do with, uh, it's a passive aggressive insult to somebody. I threw shade to her because she missed my party. All right. She, you putting her under the shade, putting her in the dark. Well, there's, there's new slang for relationships as well. Um, uh, any idea what illy means? Really great brand of coffee, right? Illy now means I love you. I love you. Illy, I-L-Y, I love you. And how about illism? I-L-Y-S-M. What does that mean? I love you so much. Yeah. And it's, it's used casually in text, um, but, but it is, is there. Another word that is, is now in, in use is bay, B-A-E. Um, what in the world does B-A-E mean? Well, it means before anyone else. You are my, you are my uh, significant other. You are my main crush right now before anyone else, my bae. It, it's used like, um, I'd, I'd like to have this space by myself tonight because bae, my bae is coming over. Yeah, yeah. And the last one, ship. Uh, ship means, well, it's just short for relationship. And, and how does it get used? Well, it gets used like... Um, uh, I, if you would like to see somebody get together, if you're a matchmaker, right? You, you, you uh, talk about, um, I would ship those two together. I would ship those two together. I'd love to ship them. Uh, I'd love to see them in a relationship. Um, all of that is to illustrate the fact that teenagers... Teenagers are excellent at coining words, aren't they? Especially today, but it's been that way for generations. And um, in the 1960s, we had this, these unobtrusive words. Cool is a good one. It's, it's kind of innocuous, you know? It, yeah, it's not warm, it's not hot, it's not cold, it's, it's just cool. And it's kind of innocuous. And so um, we, we packed it full of other meanings. And the truth is that that is exactly what happened in um, the first century with the word agape. We recognize the word agape as 
the word for love in Greek that we speak about in the church, and we associate it with God's love. But generically, in the Greek language, agape was pretty innocuous itself. It, It simply meant affection or benevolence towards somebody. But in the church, in the line of faith history, we discover that the word agape began to absorb the meanings of the word love found in Hebrew, found, in fact, in the biblical text. Now, in the biblical text, there's two different words that describe God's love for his people. We find them conveniently in one spot in Deuteronomy uh, 7, verses 7 and 8. There we read, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were fewest of all the peoples. Because the, but because the Lord loved you and kept an oath, which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So we find the word love twice in that passage, and it's two different Hebrew words. The first one, he set his love on you, is the word ahed. It it is simply to have affection for. And the word that we find later, but because the Lord loved you, is the word hasak, and it means to cling to or to join. Now, the word ahed, the first one, is used very prolifically in the Old Testament to speak about God's love toward his people. But it's not, it's not simple affection for, as we would describe it, among um, our casual friends. Rather, it's, it's not fickle at all. It's marked by selfless commitment that is unconditionally given because because of an identity. It's interesting. Isaiah captures this idea in chapter 43, verse 1. He writes, But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And that is that idea of committed selfless, unconditional love that perseveres. It perseveres because God has chosen his people. The same same apostle that wrote John 3.16 wrote some epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We find them at the end of, toward the back of the New Testament. And I'd like to ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 4, if you would. It's interesting that John brings this kind of background to his his description of love here in chapter 4 of his first epistle. It's important that we understand that this is indeed what is happening. John is marrying this this word agape that in Greek was very generic, very innocuous. He is marrying it with the understanding of God's love as described in the Old Testament. And in chapter 4, we see him use this word agape 28 times. Let's start with verse 7. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. Beloved is that is again, it's it's a it's a morphing of the word agape. It simply means the 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 beloved one, the esteemed one, the favorite one. Let us love one another, he says. Let us, as as if to say it's a choice. And indeed, it is a choice. It's a decision that we make that involves our will. Love is from God. 
or love is of God. That phrase is, is interesting because in its syntax, as it's put together, it's possessive. In other words, love, love is, um, it emanates from God. It has its origin in him. He who loves is born of God and knows God. That is to say that, that the experience of God's love, both in the, in the receiving and in the giving, being loved by him and then loving others is an integral part to our relationship with God. It's at the center of our relationship with God. Verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's the same sentence, only turned upside down. It's a parallel statement, but made in the negative. And we find this throughout John's letter. It's a feature of his writing. And it's curious because it, you also find this feature or this pattern in much of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament like Psalms and Proverbs, you have a statement and then a repeat of the statement in a, in a little different way. It's kind of interesting. A lot of preachers do the same thing today, right? They say the same thing over and over again, just a little, in, a, in a little different way. And the reason is, is because he wants to get that point across. And so we have this positive statement in verse 7, but then a reflection of that statement in the negative in verse 8. Um, he, John does not conclude that love is God. That's not is what he is saying. Understanding, he's saying God is love, but he is not saying love is God. Love is not God. Love is not the ultimate good, not the highest aim, not the measure of morality, but the expression of God. You see, if love is given the status of the measure of morality, think about it. Then whatever we call love is deemed to be moral. Do you understand the difference there? It's important that we understand that. Morality is based upon, is not based upon one's conception of what love is, but upon the revelation of God concerning right and wrong, that which yields life and that which yields death. John is not teaching that our theory about love is, is divine, but rather that God is the one who gives the meaning of love. Our love our, or our conception of love does not define who God is, but rather it is God who is the source of love. There's a lot of confusion, I think, within, uh, within Christianity, particularly popular Christianity. We say that God is love, and then, then we, we don't know what to do with consequences that don't look like love to us. They look like discipline or they, how, why, how could God do this if he's a loving God, right? We hear that a lot. And a lot of people use that, uh, that, that misunderstanding to, to justify keeping God at arm's length. It's important to, for us to understand, again, that our conception of love does not define who God is. Rather, God himself is the source. He is the origin of love. Look at verse 9 with me. This is, our, this is our Christmas connection. By this, the love of God is manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love that was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son. This word manifested means to make apparent, to, to, to make it visible, 
make it known, even to say to make it actual. In this, the love of God was made actual in that he sent his only begotten son. This word begotten simply means to be born. Think about it. Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is God Almighty, but he was born of a woman. He is God's only begotten son. He is God's only born son. God's love was made actual, apparent, visible, and thus, as a result, made known to us, made known to the world by sending his only born son in the birth of Jesus. Now, God's love is a whole lot more than a feeling. His love is indeed the person of Jesus Christ and the event of his entry into humanity. This sentence here and its parallel sentence in verse 10, again, we've got this parallel thing going on, are at, these two sentences are at the theological core of John's definition of love. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we, we talked about this word propitiation before, right? It is, it is that uh, appeasement, the atonement for, and it's not simply the payment for. It is, it is indeed Jesus taking our place, paying our debt by taking our place. That's the word propitiation. Now, he says uh, that God has sent his son to be the one who takes our place, and love is what God has done on our behalf. Love is indeed, he, it's, it's Jesus himself. He is the one that has done this, it, and it's not just, the, not just the doing of it, it is the being of it. So what should be our response to this? That's the big question. This, how do we respond to this person, this manifestation of God's love? Well, it's verse 11. Look at it. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Hmm. Right here, John goes back to his opening sentence in verse 7. He says, let us love one another, as if to say it's a decision, which it is. It's a matter of the will, a concrete decision. Let us love one another. We ought to love one another if God has loved us. This is, this is an ethical imperative. What in the world does that mean? Well, th what's the word imperative mean? It means you've got to do this. You have to do this. There's no other way you have to do this. It's imperative. What does the word ethic mean? It means, it means the, the, uh, the standard by which we live. So John is saying, if you are a believer, if you, if you are a believer in Christ, this is non-negotiable. This is our ethic as believers. We must love one another. Well, what's so, what's so hard about that? <laughs> yeah. There's no confusion here. We don't earn God's love by by what we do, right? No. Our experience of God's love, our experience of God's love is what enables us to love one another. It is this kind of love that we ourselves have received 
the love that forgives our sins and identifies with us in the, in the walking out of our life. We have that experience of God's love, honestly, as kind of on-the-job training. We experience that in order to be able to express the very same thing toward one another. It's the same love with all its implications. I have, we, we have to sit down and say, wait, what has God done with me? If he has loved me unconditionally, if he has forgiven me the, the, all of the stuff, all of the unmentionables in my life, that is exactly what he calls us to give one another. We're not, we're not called to, we're not called to work up or create some quantity of love. No, we are to love outwardly toward one another what God has given to us already. We learn it at the cross. We learn it at the cross. Jesus gave himself for us. And we also learn it in our day-to-day walk, in the nitty-gritty of our relationships with one another. And that love is something that we choose to give. It's not, it's not just a feeling. It's not an ideal that we are trying to attain to. If love were an ideal then it could be described in some list of attributes. But love is dynamic and growing. It's the result of our relationship with Jesus. Let's look at verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. No one has seen God, declares John. Now, wait a minute. There should have been somebody back there, right? Somebody must have seen God. What about Moses? Don't you know Moses? Didn't he see God? Up on the mountain, I mean, he came down from the mountain glowing. Nobody could look at him, right? He was, he was coming, he came down with this, this uh, uh, Shekinah glory. Surely he had seen God. Well, Exodus 33, we see what happened there. Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about my, while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you will not see. Moses got to see the afterglow, but that's all. And that was enough. John says, no one has seen God. And then, then there's this semicolon. And then, and then it, it seems like it takes off a totally different direction. I'd like to suggest that perhaps we could even put the word but in there. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. What does that say? We've, we, we say it casually all the time. 
Some, some people, the only gospel they will read is you. No one's seen God. But, but if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. The word abide means to stay, to continue. Yes, even to endure, to remain. God remains. He endures in us. The word perfected is, we've, we've seen it before, it means completed or to accomplish. If God's love abides, if it stays, if it endures, if it remains and is completed, or accomplished, as we love one another, God's love will be accomplished, completed in us. This, the word love is, is dynamic. It's not, it's not a static word. We must decide to live in it, to dwell in it, to remain in it, to continue in it, and to grow in it grow in its full implications. Our love is our love for one another is precisely how God is revealed to those who do not know him. Let me say that again. Our love for one another is precisely how others will know that God has sent him. John 17, 17. There, the same apostle records the words of Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays to the Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. By the way, that's, that scripture right there, that verse, is our Wi-Fi password in this room. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's what happens here. Verse 20 in that same chapter, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me that the world would believe that you sent me. That's the end game. That's the, that's the perfection. That's the completion, the accomplishment of his love in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The word to know means to know absolutely. It's gnosko. It's, it's to have full knowledge of, to be aware, a complete assurance. The word given, has given, is to deliver, to bring forth. Note that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the evidence that we are living in Jesus and he is living in us. The fruit of the Spirit, we know, right? Galatians chapter 5. What's the first one of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, yes. That's the beginning. This is the agape that John is talking about. It's God-like love that is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a natural thing. It's, it's a supernatural thing. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Note again, back in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus says that they may be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they may be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me? We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God is answering. God is answering Jesus' prayer right now. Right there in John's penning of this epistle, 
and in our lives as well. Let's look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Whoever confesses, that means simply to acknowledge, to to. In its root, it means to say the same thing as, to acknowledge. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, who says that? God himself. It's agreeing with God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides. It's the same idea as, as we've already talked about, to remain with, to dwell in abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know. This word to know is, again, the same as above. It's gnosko, to be absolutely certain of, to be sure. Now, here's a new word. We have come to know and have believed. We've come to know and believe. This word believe is to have faith. And by implication, it means to trust to commit. Last week, we, we, we talked about Mary and the, the uh, message from Gabriel, right? And she believed God. Martha came and said, blessed is she who believed. Who did I say? I, I said Martha, didn't I? I mean, Elizabeth. Thank you. She, she acknowledged the coming of Mary and said, blessed is she who believed God. It's, it's that, that ability to, to trust absolutely enough to commit your way. Whoever ever acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God remains or dwells in him and he remains or dwells in God. And we are absolutely sure of God's love for us. Second half of verse 16, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Again, back up and and remember that love is not God. Love is not the ultimate good, the highest aim, the measure of morality. It is the expression of God. Living a life that expresses this agape, this godlike love, this unconditional, unmerited love remains in God and God remains in him. Verse 17, by this, love is perfected. It's completed with us so that we may have confident confidence in the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world well wait wait a second we've been talking about love here this whole time john why why do you bring up judgment i mean judgment is oh that's negative isn't it and this love language this love talk is fill in my cup And now you talk about judgment? Hmm. It's interesting that the word judgment here in Greek is the word krisis. What's it sound like? Crisis. It's the moment of decision. By this love is perfected, it's completed. You see, God's love matures when we face judgment or when we face crisis in our lives. In that moment of crisis, we are forced to make a decision and God's love is matured or completed in us at that moment. And then he seals the point with the reminder that that Jesus Christ, that we meet in the midst of our own crisis, is the one who understands and knows our daily journey. He is so we are, so as we are in the world. 
You see, Jesus meets us when we come to terms in our own crisis. We come to terms with who we are. Completely undressed, this is who we are. Nothing hidden. And it's in that moment then that the Lord completes his work in us in such a way as we begin to understand that it's not based on how I look, how I act. It's based on him. This love is based on who he is. Look at verse 18 with me. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Hmm. Again, as love matures in our day-to-day life, the result is that fear is eliminated. The reason that John gives that fear has to do with our worry is about punishment. Every human being worries about consequences, right? About punishment. Because the scripture is clear. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But punishment is given as a consequence to disobedience. And what does the word propitiation mean? It means that Jesus took our place and bore our punishment. So we are not under judgment. Oh, wait, wait, wait a second. What about, what about this stuff that happens to happens to people, all the bad stuff. What about in the Old Testament, um, God sending his people off into exile? Wasn't that punishment? Does he love them? What is that about? There's a difference between punishment and discipline. A big difference there. And we need to recognize that. Hebrews 12, the writer says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And just just so you know, ladies, it applies to you too. Discipline is for corrective, is a corrective thing for the sake of redirection and prospering in righteousness. But punishment is the payment of a debt or the consequence of a transgression. Fear of punishment reveals either disbelief of God's provision in Jesus or a lack of maturity in one's understanding of God's gift of grace. We're not yet complete in understanding God's unconditional, unmerited love expressed in Jesus. Perfect love casts out fear. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's kind of bold. Hmm. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Christian love is based solely on Christ's love for us. Therefore, we are called to love as he loves unconditionally, not because of merit or desirability, but in spite of our human flaws. And the impossibility of that, I mean, truly, that's impossible in and of ourselves. But that impossibility is turned upside down when the Holy Spirit is involved. If someone says, 
I love God and hates his brother. John cuts right to the chase, doesn't he? He removes all preconceived exceptions. Loving God requires love for the other brother or the other sister. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It's a matter of obedience. Oh, but I don't, I don't feel, I just don't feel it. I don't feel like loving them. Or I do love them, but not like Jesus. Or I will, I promise, eventually, but I'm not there right now. Or I've been hurt. I've been hurt by them. And I can't. Parentheses, won't forgive. Have you heard that before? I can't forgive them. Hmm. No, the word, the real word is won't. Well, well, what about him? What about her? I am not going to love like Jesus until they do. Hmm. You heard those excuses? John, John eliminates every single one of them. Loving one another, again, is the evidence that we have received the fullness of God's love expressed in the sending of his son. Loving one another is the evidence that we have received the fullness of God's love expressed in the sending of Jesus. Go back to verse 9. By this... The love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember, remember where we started? This is the reason we celebrate Christmas the birth of our Savior. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son in the, into the world but that the world would be saved through him. His love for us is more than a feeling. It's more than good intentions. It's demonstrated. His life given for ours unconditionally. And he invites and empowers us to do the same. You see, the definition of love that we find here in this fourth chapter of John and dare I say, in the living of the life of Jesus himself, this definition of love has not changed by the progression of the centuries. It hasn't changed by the progression of our cultures. No, the definition of love is still a person. And that person is Jesus. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we stand before you this morning. And we stand humbly. Because none of us deserve to stand before you. And yet, by your grace, you have made it possible for us. 
to not only encounter you, but to, to experience your life in ours. And Lord, in this season, we call it a, a season of giving. We pray that you would, that you would enable us with, with greater and greater clarity to love one another, even as you have loved us. That's our deep and earnest prayer, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. We pray that you would help us extend that to others, not only in this family, but Lord, even beyond these walls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you desire prayer this morning, there will be those waiting to pray with you. I invite you to sing now as in reflection of what we've talked about. And don't neglect the opportunity to love one another.